from Movendi International, I'm Mike Dünnbier. This is the Alcohol Issues Podcast. It's Monday, January 25th, 2021. Welcome to the very first episode of Season 2 of the Alcohol Issues Podcast. After nine exciting and insightful episodes in our first season, we are back after the holidays. And we begin Season 2 with a real highlight. This is a special edition. On the eve of the release of a groundbreaking new report, I have the chance to talk with two of the researchers behind the report, Frida Dangard and Tim Stockwell. In this special edition, we skip the weekly alcohol issues highlights to completely focus on the in-depth conversation. For this special edition of the Alcohol Issues podcast, we welcome Frida Dangard and Tim Stockwell. Frida is an associate professor in clinical physiology at Saal Grenske Academy, University of Gothenburg, and a doctor at the Queen Sylvia Children's Hospital, which is part of Saal Grenske University Hospital in Gothenburg. Tim is the director of the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research and a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, Canada. Together we will discuss key findings and unique insights into a brand new and really groundbreaking report called Alcohol and the Coronavirus Pandemic – Individual, Societal and Policy Perspectives. Frida and Tim are part of a team of world-renowned researchers in the field of alcohol harm and policy led by Harold Holder. This group has written influential research reports in the series Alcohol and Society every year since 2013. This year's report is a little bit different and a bit more special, I think. It deals with a subject that we are right now all living in and living through, the coronavirus pandemic. And it's the first systematic assessment of individual, societal and policy issues related to alcohol and COVID-19. So with Frida and Tim, I discuss the four central themes of the report. Alcohol's role in the pandemic, the pandemic's effects on alcohol harm, the alcohol policy response around the world, including the tactics of the alcohol industry to shape this response and Last but not least, the key recommendations of the researchers based on their extensive analysis. Together we go into detail about the different dimensions of alcohol's role in fueling the coronavirus pandemic. We talk about emerging evidence of rising or declining alcohol consumption and what we know about the health and social burden of alcohol during the pandemic. Is it growing or is it shrinking? And with Frida and Tim, I talk about their analysis of the policy responses in countries all around the world. The question is, has the world done well or has it failed in the face of the link between alcohol and COVID-19? And finally, both Frida and Tim share their hopes of what they would like to see the report accomplishes. I really enjoyed the conversation with them and as you will hear, this might not be the last podcast we did together. 
Hello, Tim. Hello, uh, Frida. I'm really excited to uh, discuss with you today. Um, I think a groundbreaking report looking at alcohol and the coronavirus pandemic. And I think in our conversation today, we'll explore why I think this is groundbreaking, I think, for the different elements in the report. So first of all, thank you so much for uh, joining today um, and uh, being ready to discuss this. And I wanted to start with um, just giving an overview for you and the listeners. Um, we, I hope we can discuss four segments, four topics, uh, because in the report that you and uh, other colleagues have written, you analyze the, the, the data about alcohol and the pandemic. And then you also look at what the pandemic might do to the alcohol burden, how alcohol harm and alcohol consumption is uh, developing. Then you look at the policy response, how government and jurisdictions around the world have responded to, to this. And lastly, uh, there, there is also a chapter on recommendations. So uh, uh, with thoughts about what governments can and should do or should not do. So these are the four topics that I would like to uh, get into. If that's fine for you guys. Yes, that's fine. Yes. Yeah, that awesome. sounds great. So Thank you. For the beginning, then, um, talking about alcohol and alcohol's contribution to the coronavirus pandemic, um, what is it that uh, you have found as the, the key, the headline topics under this um, headline? You go first, Frida. So, I mean, there are a few main points. Uh, one is the physiological uh, effects that alcohol has on the immune system and uh, also uh, on the severity of the COVID-19 uh, infection. So you have, uh, firstly, an uh, increased uh, susceptibility of contracting the uh, COVID-19 virus. And then you also have um, the immune response is uh, compromised so that you have um, and two parts of the immune response really is compromised so that you have a decreased immune response to take care of the virus. And then you also have an increased uh, inflammatory response, which means that you can have an increased severity of disease. So that's the physiological part of it. Yeah. And then there's also a behavioral part, which maybe you could talk a bit more about, Tim. Yes. Yeah, so just um, amplifying a little bit about the risk of transmission. So, in fact, a very one of the things that struck me doing the research was the evidence around drinking contexts, particularly bars, people, places where strangers come in contact with each other. And of course, when you're drinking alcohol, it's people, the whole point is not to socially distance. And probably the whole point when you're the under influence of alcohol is not worry about future risks. So likelihood of taking precautions, sanitizing, not touching your face, keeping your distance. Um, and of course, other things we do when we're in um, under the influence, we might be singing, talking loudly, especially in a loud, noisy bar, people come close to each other. So there's lots of evidence that these super spreader 
events can occur around drinking. So there's some particular concerns there. And in general, I would just highlight the fact that for an effective response to the COVID-19 crisis, alcohol policy needs to be key. It has so many implications for the burden or for the risk, as uh, Frida has pointed out, the risk of complications um, and presumably also, and Frieda is, is the medical expert, I'm a mere psychologist, but I, you know, if there's a compromised immune system, this has implications surely for the effectiveness of vaccination. Yes, I mean, that's what you would think, at least, that we, don't, we know less about because there are obviously no studies as yet uh, in that sense, but uh, there is at least one larger study just uh, it came out showing that you have at least an eight times higher risk of uh, getting a severe COVID-19 infection if you have um, an, an alcohol abuse disorder. So that we, we know that that there is a real risk of uh, getting a more severe disease, complications from the, the disease. And with what we know about alcohol and the immune system, you would really think that it would also affect the uh, efficiency of the vaccine. Yeah, yeah, and thanks for um, explaining so well the physiological effects. And I think in the course of the pandemic, uh, we have written about it. I think people started understanding that alcohol has these immunodepressant uh, functions. But I thought it's very interesting. I wasn't so aware of this, that it also increases the inflammatory uh, effect so that the disease actually is then more severe. So thanks for highlighting this. And in this context, Frida, I wanted to stick a little bit more with other risk factors or other uh, health issues that alcohol is also causing and what the interplay there is with alcohol maybe other non-communicable disease risk factors and, and COVID, if you could explain that a little bit more, please. Yes, well, we, we do know that people with an alcohol use disorder often have other um, physical issues. So they smoke more often, which is also a risk factor. They have uh, more often um, other cardiovascular disease. Uh, they have uh, cancer, obesity. Uh, high blood pressure, all of those risk factors that we know also lead to a more severe uh, COVID-19 infection. Mm. So uh, there's definitely an interplay there. And also other factors which, is more, uh, which are more uh, socioeconomical factors mm. that there is more people living, uh, many people in the same um, flat, for example, or... Um, that type of living, um, tight living quarters and um, many people sharing space, which also leads to uh, an increased risk of uh, disease spreading. Um, mm. So all of those factors, but the socioeconomical factors the, um, are interplaying in this uh, disease spreading, I think. And also it's more common to, to have those uh, disabilities or, or diseases in yeah. socioeconomical uh, areas. So, yeah, and then 
in terms of alcohol's contribution to actually fueling the pandemic, there is a third element, and that is alcohol's burden on the health system. And um, I was very interested to read this in the report, and I'm also aware, Tim, that you have already early on, I, I believe in April, already written about this um, in Canada, because I think provincial governments declared alcohol essential there, and, and you were outlining this dimension of alcohol's burden on the health system. So could you explain um, the reality there and what the evidence is that you found? Yes, I think one big picture piece for people to bear in mind is the scale of alcohol problems in most countries is similar where people drink alcohol. It's similar in scale to the impact on illness and premature death as COVID-19. In Canada, we have estimated slightly more deaths from alcohol than COVID-19. And I know in Sweden, you've controversially had different policies that have, um, and you've had quite high rates of mortality and they appear to be higher than what is estimated for alcohol's contribution to premature death in Sweden. But it's a similar scale. So we're talking about two massive problems, yeah. one of which we're terrified of currently and reorganize our whole lives to minimize our risk. And the other which we probably are largely most of us unaware of or don't think too much about or care too much about. And yet its impact in many places is greater. And it does reflect how we make judgments and live our lives and how we evaluate risks and a small chance of a, of a, um, a very big um, un unpleasant thing is uh, valued highly if it seems imminent and it's on every news channel we're told about the number of infections and deaths and hospitalizations where we get virtually no information about alcohol when in fact in Canada it's causing more harm than COVID but nobody cares <laughs> so that that's that's one element but the other thing is that really what struck me early on was how our political leaders had so little understanding of the 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 scale and severity of alcohol-related harm and policy. They actually argued, and it happened in the States and I believe other countries as well, that they had to maintain a really convenient supply of affordable alcohol to the population, lest their health services would be swamped with people going into alcohol withdrawal. Um, and what struck me as ironic, it's the reverse. I mean, that is 180 degrees wrong. Um, for lots of reasons. One is that the harms caused by continuing the supply of alcohol are many, many times greater than those due to alcohol withdrawal. So if you're worried about protecting the healthcare service and wanting to reduce the burden from competing issues, you would actually really restrict alcohol sale if that was your only concern. Um, and then the particular argument that people will come in droves with needing for help with alcohol withdrawal. There's evidence on this in India. Uh, this is mentioned in our report. There was a spike. It lasted a very short while, a few days, a week. And then it quickly dived to nothing because if you don't sustain people's drinking, they can't go into withdrawal. Now, that's not to say you can't have other remedies. Um, you need to step up healthcare and treatment for people going into withdrawal. But it is not a valid argument for protecting healthcare resources during the crisis. That's not to say that we should go all the way to prohibition. That's a very complex decision. Yeah. But 
Anyway, so if we want to protect our healthcare service, we need sound, effective public health policies around alcohol. That's true. And actually, if I can just add, I just had a look at the numbers for hospitalizations for 2020 due to COVID-19 in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, just above 40,000 hospitalizations. And if you look at numbers for alcohol-related hospitalizations earlier, it's around 60,000 a year. So even in Sweden, with mm. our policies around the COVID-19 restrictions, mm. we still had about 20,000 less hospitalizations from COVID-19 than from alcohol-related yeah. uh, issues, which is quite a lot. Yeah, thanks for this figure, Frida, because I think what I read in the report is then that there is actually, as Tim is saying, this underestimation of what alcohol's burden on the emergency services and the, and the hospitals, so healthcare, actually is. And um, I, th I think you have some figures in, in the report, like in general, and have you seen some countries where um, they have addressed, they have reduced alcohol availability and, and that has really eased the burden? Could you talk about this, please? Yes, I'll, I'll um, mention some cases. There's some nice um, reports from Mexico and South Africa that have looked in quite detail about, like in Mexico, there have been local regions have had strict, um, quite strict restrictions on alcohol and have observed reduced impact on healthcare as, as a consequence. And then we have cases where the other, it's been the reverse or where they've gone from a prohibition to relaxation and then back to prohibition, like in South Africa. And predictably, people presenting to emergency rooms under the restrictions, they go right down. And when the restrictions are lifted, they go right back up. And there are complications around that. And it's well known people drink, um, you know, illicit alcohol um, that might be contaminated and dangerous. Um, and that's true. Though nonetheless, the scale of those problems, again, is way smaller than the people dying from liver cirrhosis and cancers and a whole range of other, you know, there's about 300 plus, you know, official diagnoses that you can get that are alcohol related and that can make you very ill or kill you. Um, so it's compl complicated. Nobody wants to set up a circumstance that encourages people to drink illicit alcohol with the risk of dying. And we need to look at ways to prevent that and minimize that. Um, but it is not a pretext for having a nationwide policy that makes alcohol as like where I'm in Canada, this, I don't know if this is, this is true in Sweden, since the beginning of the pandemic, like from April the 4th, I think it was, I could pick up the phone and order um, a minimum quantity. It had to be at least 24 bottles of beer or they, it wouldn't wow. be delivered. Um, so the, the, the private liquor stores, we have government liquor stores and private. The government ones wouldn't deliver, uh, but the private ones were allowed to. And within minutes um, or hours, I could get 24 beers delivered to my doorstep um, and so, and it's at liquor store prices. If we're not drinking in bars and restaurants where alcohol is way more expensive, plus we're staying at home, not going on holidays, and those of us lucky enough to work have a lot more um, disposable income. 
Um, we're not, it's hard to spend your money when you're just stuck at yeah. home. And so alcohol is provided to you very conveniently <laughs> and affordably. And governments and where we are bending over backwards to make that the case. And there's the extra worry that that will just stay put. When, the, when we're, the, you know, we're over COVID, we know the, you know, the, the, the context that makes the public health crisis with alcohol, this silent epidemic, worse will be um, made, you know, it'll be made more severe, will be more susceptible to alcohol-related public health problems. Yeah, thanks. And I think that brings us also to the conversation then, the, the second uh, topic. Um, what is it that you are finding in terms of the coronavirus pandemic's contribution to the overall alcohol burden? Um, is alcohol con consumption increasing or falling? Is alcohol-related harm increasing or falling? What's the picture that that you are seeing uh, thanks to your analysis? Yeah, I remember the um, Sven Andreasen, one of our colleagues on the reports, um, accessed the, the data, I think it was in the first few months of the um, pandemic in Sweden. There was a reduction, sorry, there was an increase in sales from System Belaget stores. Yeah, that's right. Um, but but um, that was more than offset by reduced travellers' imports for obvious yeah, reasons. Exactly. And yeah, so there was calculated a net reduction of about seven, eight yeah, percent in Sweden. It, um, but in many other countries, it depends. It's crucial about the policy and the particular circumstances. Yeah. In Canada, during the first stage of lockdown, in the, we're looking at the sales data week by week. And it's very clear that um, sales have gone up and survey data supported this in many developed um, drinking countries. Alcohol consumption did increase during the lockdown, and it, but it is depending on the policy context and how whether restrictions were put in place or whether the government, like they did in most parts of Canada, bent over backwards to keep the taps, you know, the taps flowing, um, the alcohol supply flowing. Yeah. I actually, I just found the the data from Europe, and as. I can tell from, at least from that report, is that the only country that actually increased their consumption is the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, all other countries decreased somewhat. But as you say, Tim, it's, it's all in the context. Where do you drink and what does that lead to? Um, is that survey data or sales data? No, that's survey data. Sales data, yeah. I think, from the InBev and the other they said a much bigger decrease than mm. actually survey data could uh, uh, could show really uh, yeah interesting Be because you don't really know how they measure the sales data no it's problematic yes. i think we have the best in, in scandinavian countries and canada we have the very best sales data so I trust the report from Sweden, there was an overall decrease. Yeah. And I trust the data from here in Canada, there's been an increase. Yeah. One of the yeah, problems here is the extent of tourism. So if you yeah. just look at the of sales data and you don't take account, the tourists haven't come to help with all the drinking. Um, we've, we've made allowance for that here in Canada. It's a high tourism area where I live. But you take that into account, there's, the local people have been drinking more mm -hmm. during the lockdowns. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll come back to the policy conversation 
Um, but I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into consumption and alcohol-related harm. So if I understand it correctly, um, there is no one answer for the global situation or there is not even one answer for each individual country, right? Yes. I think we are seeing that um, people that already were using alcohol heavily, they might have increased their consumption. People that were using alcohol little, they might even have uh, decreased or maybe they have even stopped alcohol. So we have these two trends. And I think then it's like Frida is saying, it depends really on the alcohol market and the, yes. the policy mix, what was allowed for people to do or not. But you also write about like this situation then that there are different developments in terms of alcohol harm. So different types of violence might be decreasing um, yes. because people are not congregating outside, but other yes. types of violence might be increasing. And the same with road traffic accidents. So if you could spell this out a little bit more, please. Yes. Reason, you want to talk about the domestic violence? Yes. Part. Uh, I can do that. I mean, we know globally that the calls to, uh, you know, hotlines for domestic violence uh, and uh, interpersonal violence in, in, in the homes have increased tremendously. And that's true in Sweden as well. And we have in Sweden a children's hotline that they can call, uh, Bris. Mm. Uh, and over the Christmas holidays, this last Christmas holiday, the calls to Bris increased by 40% compared to last year. And most of those calls were about parents drinking and violence in the home. So, I mean, it's, it's really devastating. And another aspect of that is also when you have the lockdowns and the schools are closed, you don't pick up the uh, domestic violence because usually in most cases, around 70% of the cases of uh, child abuse, that is picked up by schools or other childcare services. So when you lock the children up with the parents drinking, then you have such a big uh, loss of uh, reporting of those cases mm. as well, with the increased risk of children um, actually being uh, abused. So that's a big concern, I think. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for this explanation. I didn't know that schools play such a big role in actually identifying uh, these problems. So, yeah, that's a real concern. Would you yes. like to add anything, uh, Tim, maybe on the mental health dimension or, or other aspects of, of harm? Yes, there is some evidence that the isolation and the lockdown has not been, for obvious reasons, good for mental health in general. And for some people, uh, that has fueled more drinking. Um, and it's also the other way around. We know that if people increase their drinking, especially if they're trying to cope with anxiety or stress, depression, it's a, it's a nice short-term solution, but it um, deprives you of good sleep. Um, and it doesn't take the anxiety or the causes of it away. And it can even enhance your experience, your proneness to have fear, panic, anxiety, um, because that's your body reacting to the depressant effects of the alcohol. And if you keep subjecting your nervous system to that, it's fighting back 
and making you more prone to anxiety. And also there's evidence around depression. Um, but there's also issues about injury. We're talking about these short-term mm -hmm. effects some changes. We found here in Canada, and I don't know how generally this is the case, but impaired driving has actually worsened. You would expect with people getting out less, but actually uh, the police have been detecting more people inebriated. It's interesting, the pattern of that has changed. So it wouldn't just be on a Friday or Saturday night or in the early hours of the morning at the weekend, it's any time of day and night because people's pattern of drinking has fundamentally changed. Those who continue, a lot more people are drinking heavily throughout the day and will be just over the legal limits and when they're out driving, they'll get caught if you have a good um, enforcement system. So it's often just asserted, and we may have um, been too general in our reports saying that road crashes have, well, road crashes may have reduced a little because people are, are driving less, but actually impaired driving as an issue appears to be greater in many places. Yeah, I think it says in the report, if I remember correctly, that um, sobriety checkpoints like this kind of practice has uh, declined beca because of obvious hygiene reasons. And so there might be this interplay that people, as you are saying, Tim, they change their alcohol consumption behavior and they get the feedback that there is less uh, checkpoints, less testing for these things. That would be a local enforcement issue and would vary according to different police regions. So I know parts of Ontario here have reported like a 40% increase in charges for impaired driving. Actually, no, it was more than that. It was, uh, yeah, 50%. Um, so that's not the whole world, but it will depend on local enforcement strategies. And... Um Moving on from this conversation, because I wanted to ask you also, um, there is evidence or there is uh, the assumption that if people meet less outside, there is less violence around, around alcohol outlets, so to say. But as Frida has explained, there might be a quite dramatic increase in domestic violence and in yes. child abuse yes. and so on. Yes. Is it too early to ask you guys what the overall development is that alcohol-related violence is uh, going up uh, overall or is it going down or it's just an unfair question to ask you at this moment? It's an unfair question to ask us. <laughs> no, that's my opinion. So sorry for that. <laughs> look, uh, yeah, I don't know whether you... you Frida's quietly knows pretty much everything and so I, you probably have more knowledge about this yeah. than me. Actually, we don't have any numbers of the interpersonal violence usually occurring outside. We don't. We haven't gotten any data on that in Sweden, at least. Uh, yeah. And regarding the domestic violence and, and child abuse data, we don't really have uh, as much on that either, more than what I told you about the breeze numbers going up and, yeah. and what we know from other uh, areas. But... What we do have is, is reports from, uh, for example, London, where they, during the first lockdown period in April, had an increase of head trauma or head injuries mm. in children in one hospital by 1,500%, mm. which is a terrible <laughs> indication of domestic yeah. violence because that's almost you know, only due to abuse or neglect. Yeah. 
One piece of evidence still relevant to this is the studies of emergency room presentations in South Africa. And I know South Africa is obviously a unique country and how applicable that is elsewhere. But they have, as I've said, had this interesting policy of the severe prohibitions being lifted and then reinstated and it being quite clear that there's dramatic impact on overall presentations for acute illnesses and injuries. So violence is a proportion of those. Um, yes. so and especially in South Africa, they have a big, big uh, impact on violence because they have um, in their emergency room presentations, usually they have a very big part of those being uh, violent uh, yeah. injuries. So uh, that's mainly what, what decreased. In okay, thank you, Frida. And before we move on to discuss the policy landscape um, when it comes to alcohol and the coronavirus pandemic, I just wanted to highlight the point you made, Tim, um, with uh, the changing alcohol consumption behavior. You, you talked about it in uh, relation to driving under the influence. And I just thought it's very important. I think we, as you are explaining, there are some elements where we can already see how harm is developing, especially harm to others, as we were discussing now. Yes. But overall, yes. the, the alcohol norm might be changing, right? That the way people think about alcohol consumption, as you were alluding to, Tim, that they people maybe start self-medicating more, uh, coping more yes. with alcohol. Children are more exposed to parents using alcohol yes. so that the, the entire social um, role that alcohol plays is actually changing through the pandemic now. Yeah, I think it's interesting you use the word social norms. I think that's a critical idea because I think one can make the case that the social norms are less effective because people are socializing less and there's less peer uh, pressure to, you know, to be safer. There's less a uh, need to conform for how we, uh, what time we present to work or how we um, comport ourselves when we're around people, when we're working. It's much easier to be turning off our Zoom video and carrying on drinking while working um, and without any necessarily immediate consequences um, mm. then there will of course be potentially tragic other consequences to those around us if we're doing that or ourselves yeah thanks for this and now with uh, already touching upon society i have another uh, unfair question for you so yeah. in the global picture um, you have analyzed the countries that are implementing public health friendly or public health oriented uh, alcohol policy measures to contain the spread of the virus and alcohol industry friendly measures. And Tim, you mentioned some of those. So overall, is the world doing well in terms of uh, alcohol policy during the pandemic or is the world not doing uh, so well? What would, you, what would you say? What does the report show? Well, from going through the material, and the, 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 the report is quite, the material is quite rich in terms of documenting what is happening, what are the responses. It's, it's more eloquent about what is happening than how effective it is. But look at it through the lens of what is effective policy for reducing public health and safety 
problems from drinking. I would say on the whole, sadly, the world has not done too well. I think it's been a golden moment, an opportunity for the alcohol industry to lobby for policies they've been trying to achieve for decades. In North America and Scandinavia, it's an opportunity to argue against the government monopolies um, and sort of the, the, any idea of government restrictions, which it's easy to undermine when we're all trapped in our homes where we have to break rules about home delivery. We weren't allowed home delivery before, and we can see very clearly once our private liquor stores were allowed home delivery here, sales went just skyrocketed and they took market share from the government. Um, so it's a golden opportunity. The industry, the big big alcohol has been lobbying government, like the federal um, government in the US and governments around Europe to reduce taxes. Um, and we know tax and pricing strategies are key to regulating the alcohol market in a way that dampens down problems with public health and safety. And so all of these things um, allow the industry to just take away red tape, remove um, restrictions that have been with us for decades. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, what we hope counterbalances that is a greater awareness of public health in general, writ large. And I think there's also an opportunity for us to reflect as a society on the many risks that uh, we put ourselves under. And particularly now with the COVID-19 crisis, the very importance of alcohol, if pe enough people are aware of how critical it is in our response, then maybe we can um, balance this and have a, a stronger set of public health policies generally for viruses, for behavioural issues, um, substance use issues. Yeah, I thought this part about the alcohol industry in, in the report was very strong and I think enlightening in terms of what you are saying that uh, they are aggressively pushing now an agenda that they had on their table or on their radar for decades now never let a good crisis go to waste. And yes. sometimes I feel like maybe this is also industry overreach, like this kind of greed of the, the industry. Yes. You, you explained uh, the mental health dimension there and this vicious cycle that people can end up in and the alcohol industry promoting their products as tools to cope mm -hmm. with this yes. situation. I yes. feel like this is so unethical. So maybe there is also a backlash against this kind of corporate behavior. There is, and against that is the, um, uh, the, the trend in most societies around the world for populist um, politics and the sense that I'm in charge, don't you mess with my freedom, I will make all my own decisions. And that seems to spread into being, being properly informed about risks and really anything that restricts the freedom of people who are making their livelihood through selling stuff in the private markets, um, that we should protect their interests above all else. So anyway, there's, there's all of these strands in, the, in modern society, but I think we're also more aware of everything now. And I think um, maybe we, 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 you know, if steps are taken to at least inform 
the citizens in the different countries about the the implications of alcohol for our health and safety, the implications of alcohol policies for the present COVID-19 crisis. There is a chance that we can demand uh, more effective policies from our political leaders that will be more consistent with our health and well-being. So, uh, yeah. And so what is it that you have seen? So obviously countries have either through lockdown measures um, indirectly reduced alcohol availability or they have done it specifically um, around the world. And you mentioned South Africa, I think, as a clear example where trauma cases have gone up and down with uh, the introduction and the uh, removal of these But what can you say about uh, pricing and uh, availability measures and their potential effect or their real-time effect uh, in terms of the coronavirus crisis? Yes, we know pricing and availability are the strongest, most evidence-based measures that our governments can um, apply to minimize harms from, from alcohol use. And the industry have been successful in many parts of the world, deeming alcohol to be essential. This is a, a huge moment for the alcohol industry to get governments all over the world saying it is essential we have access to alcohol. Um, and, and so uh, the, the worry is that when we're over the coronavirus crisis, these relaxed policies will um, continue. And that would be to the, the detriment of public health. And do we know anything? I think we started talking about um, alcohol's health burden that is actually still underestimated or underappreciated. I is maybe yes. more correct to say by the policymakers. And I think there are really excellent parts in in the report about that, that make this analysis very clear. Do we know the effect, for example, of um, alcohol price increases, alcohol taxation in terms of um, health system functioning, alcohol's burden on the health system, but maybe yes. even reinvestment? Uh, could you explain these uh, dynamics, please? Yes, I'll have a go, then I'll keep quiet because uh, it's just this is something I'm very interested in. Um, well, I've been studying a lot with my colleagues, and I think we've got a there's been some advances in our understanding of the whole way of the mechanics of drinking in a population and how it generates harm and how policies impact on our overall drinking. So, what we know if the consumption of the whole population goes up, as it has in some parts of the world with more relaxed policies, um, then there are more heavy drinkers. There are more people drinking alcohol at every level. If you imagine a, you know, the distribution of how many people are drinking this level, two drinks, three drinks, four drinks, five drinks a day, we can predict. And studies from all over the world showed it's entirely predictable how many heavy drinkers there are, how many moderate drinkers are. And we know what their individual risks are of all the different diseases. And to some extent, we can predict the risk of injuries as well, although that's more variable according to policy and context. So it's, it's not quite like the laws of gravity, but it's getting close that the scientific basis is so strong that when we reduce the price of alcohol or make it more conveniently available, more people are drinking, more people are putting themselves at risk of uh, hundreds of different kinds of illness and acute 
um, harm. Um, and so that impacts inevitably on healthcare. So it's as close to the law of gravity as you can get from the social and health sciences that these policies will be bad for our ability to respond to um, a crisis like COVID. And I think with this summary of the policy conversation, um, I would like to move to the final topic, and that is the recommendations that you have um, in the report. And if I summarize it correctly, please correct me if I'm wrong. I think they are on individual levels, so they are talking to people um, as, of course, agents in this um, pandemic, and they are talking, of course, to governments. And uh, maybe, Frida, if you could start us off with what is it that you are recommending to people in terms of what you have now identified we know about alcohol and the coronavirus crisis? Well, the, as far as we're concerned with the evidence that we have, uh, the recommendations uh, for individuals is that you should not uh, uh, increase your alcohol consumption. You should decrease it to at least be as low as the risk level is in your country or the WHO uh, recommends, because uh, a high alcohol consumption increases the risk to be infected by the virus, and it also affects the uh, severity of the disease, the mm. time it takes to get well, and also mm. uh, the uh, consequences and uh, long-term effects. And uh, regarding the risk groups, you should avoid alcohol consumption uh, in as, as far as possible if you're 65 years old or older uh, if you're a smoker uh, or if you have been smoking uh, if you're uh, obese have high blood pressure or diabetes if you have a cardiovascular disease a respiratory disease have had a stroke or uh, cancer and especially if you have a liver disease Uh, and especially then liver cirrhosis. Mm. So and Frida, for example, for if you have diabetes, um, the recommendation to reduce your alcohol intake or even to um, avoid it at, uh, overall, does it apply to a certain age group or would you say that this is then for, for anybody um, with diabetes? It, it's mainly, I mean, the, the data around Uh, COVID-19 and uh, increased risk for for severe infection is, is uh, with type 2 diabetes, not yeah. type 1. But on the other hand, we do know that type 1 diabetics have an increased risk for all of those risk factors anyway. So I would say as a physician that I would recommend my patients with type 1 diabetes as well to, to reduce or stop their drinking. Yeah. And Can I just ask a question? Sorry, this is an unusual yes, thing of course. in a podcast for the, the guests to ask questions. But <laughs> I'm, um, I'm wondering, Frida, whether when people are being vaccinated for the time that it takes for the vaccine to work, might that be a, a window when people should also take care generally to ensure its effectiveness? 
Yes, definitely. I mean, because we do know that that uh, um, alcohol consumption affects uh, wound healing and the immune system in, in that sense. So it, and we do know that it affects the T cell uh, activity, which is what we want to activate when we have the vaccine. So uh, we would, I would definitely say to avoid alcohol during that time. Great question, Tim. You can take over the Ecolicious <laughs> podcast next week. So we should thank team up. We, we yeah. should team up and do podcasts together. Such a great idea. I would be happy to do that. And <laughs> I think now to the governmental recommendation, what would you wish or what would you urge uh, governments do in terms of alcohol policy during and after the pandemic? So I think uh, we've got two kinds of recommendations um, in the report. Well, actually, maybe three kinds. We've had the individual level. What should people do? And Frieda's addressed that. But governments need some very specific policies to restrict spread. And they've been waking up all over the world to the importance of nightclubs and bars as particular focal points and meeting in sports arenas, any, any events that brings a lot of people together and particularly um, restrictions on alcohol consumption on those occasions. So mostly governments around the world have woken up and are aware of that, um, um, despite in some instances, strong uh, lobbying from industry groups to protect their business, which is understandable, but there's a special case here. And then there's more general alcohol policies, which we've known about um, um, for a long time, that impact upon our consumption as a population. And that has implications for all of these risks, risks of um, the transmission generally of the, the virus, risks of complications and um, burden on the healthcare system. So the more we can suppress the consumption of the population as a whole, that the better we can manage these issues. And so that's about um, setting pricing policies. We know a lot now about the importance of removing cheap alcohol, really cheap, high-strength alcohol from the market. So it's called minimum pricing. So you put a floor price that you can't sell alcohol below. We now know that saves lives, reduces illness, and prevents injuries. Um, taxation policies work in the same way. So unlike the industry lobbyists, we shouldn't. It's not a time to reduce taxes. It's a time to increase them. If, that, if we're going to be consistent with protecting healthcare, convenience of access, I really don't think it's a time for delivering to people's homes and making it easy for the touch of a key, um, you know, with one keystroke or a quick phone call to get alcohol delivered to your doorstep with um, a minimum quantity so that you have to order a large amount. If you're going to have home deliveries, you shouldn't have that. You should be able to order one. One and if necessary, pay a charge for that. Any anyway, if if you have home deliveries at all, so these various policies about convenience of access, hours of opening of bars, the number of outlets that are available and competing with each other, um, all of the, regulating all of these things is important for public health. And the concern, as I've said before, is that when the where those have been relaxed, it's vital governments tighten up again when we were getting through the virus, um, the, the impacts of um, COVID-19 uh, 
in the rearview mirror, and I, you know, we all dream about that day when it's. We talk about oh that time when we were quarantined and living that this strange life. And earlier, Tim, you talked about um, your hope that the awareness of uh, public health and health promoting behavior is increasing in our populations and also alcohol's role here. I think like uh, Frida explained, alcohol and the immune system. Now people, I think, are waking up to that reality. Yeah. And yes. I just wanted to ask maybe both of you, I think there is also an element to what public health authorities or these public health agencies should do because Frida in Sweden, we have not seen that the public health agency has come out and made any recommendations um, raising awareness among the, the wider population. Do you think that this uh, is useful, is important, or how do you think about that? Yes. I mean, I would say that's really important and I'm very disappointed that they haven't done anything like that in Sweden because in Sweden, so far, people actually do listen to the authorities for the yeah, most yeah. part, even if we've had some controversy. But it's it's still something that would have a big impact, I think. So it's it's disappointing that they haven't taken the opportunity to do that. It's kind of interesting. Who would have believed that being an epidemiologist or a public health person would actually become glamorous? So <laughs> this is a time when they've had a huge uptick in people wanting to go into those professions. So it's like a moment. It won't last. <laughs> <laughs> But it is a moment, and I think some public health raising awareness, labelling of alcohol containers. I'm sure in some subliminal way, most of us think, well, alcohol can't be a, a big deal, because otherwise the government would warn us, wouldn't they? I mean, in Nordic countries and North America, a lot of the governments are in the business of selling alcohol. Surely they care about their citizens, And they would want to tell them about cancer risks and you know, risks to harm of babies, and even though that's quite well known. Um, so I think it is a time to take alcohol policies seriously, and especially now because of the special risks during uh, the, the present crisis and the connections with, with COVID-19 from our drinking Yeah, that's already a great um, final word, I would say. But I have one last question, and that goes back to actually the report in its entirety. Because, as you know, I have such a great respect for this research group and every report that you have done over the last maybe seven, eight years. And so now you were able to very quickly respond to this emerging situation. Having done the work now, what do you think... What, what is the biggest value in the report or what is it that you hope um, the report accomplishes? Frida? Yes. Well, I hope that this is an opportunity for the authorities to use our report to actually implement these strictened uh, alcohol policies instead with the support from our data. Mm. Mm. I think um, what I hope is that because this is a moment where societies all over the world are obsessing about their health and the risk of contracting this awful virus um, and its terrible complications, that we 
become aware of the many ways we put ourselves at risk that are avoidable and preventable and that we make a connection with alcohol. I mean, there are other risks we take in our lives as well, but that alcohol is considered as one of them. We just become more aware of how we can impact other people's health and our own health through our behaviour and through that awareness and, and actually restrict the power of lobby groups and the private big business to rule our minds the way they do at the moment through their advertising on the one hand and then limiting political leaders' um, will to inform citizens about risks from the products that are legally available. So I hope this is a time where we wake up, our consciousness is raised, and we see how our brains are controlled by corporate institutions in ways that are not um, consistent with our health and well-being. Thank you so much, Frida and Tim. Um, do you have anything else to say? Oh, so then for hours. <laughs> yes. I had I had such a great time, but once again, really, thank you so much for taking the time and answering uh, my questions. This was uh, great fun. Uh, really appreciate it. Well, very nice talking with you. Lovely to see you, Frida. Yes, all, you the, all the best to you and your family. Thank you to you as well. You can find the report and more background information about alcohol and the coronavirus crisis in the show notes. We'll put all relevant links there. And if you have feedback, questions and suggestions, please get in touch. My email address is mike.dunbier at movendi.ngo. You can also find my contacts in the show notes. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pino, Kristina Sperkova and Mike Dünnbier. Our theme music is by LF Music. That's it for this special edition of the Alcohol Issues podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Stay well and safe and see you next week. <music>